Hello, everyone. It is your Captain Wade speaking from In the Dry Dock, and I'm joined today by my executive officer and co-host, Will. Welcome aboard once again. Well, we must apologize again. Maybe more in my case than Will's. Life happened again, and we have to make sure that we keep our priorities straight. As much as we love doing this podcast, our lives and careers and schooling have to come first. But I'm still hoping for a semi-regular schedule. Will, what's new with you? I was just working through, you know, all my classes this time around. I'm excited for our episode today. It's going to be really fun. Yeah, my... My schooling has also gone interesting, but there's more, uh, there's more to say on that. And maybe, maybe we'll have an episode later on where we kind of expound on our backgrounds a little bit more. But for now, we are taking a step back from our usual time periods. Usually, as you've probably guessed on this podcast, we love the era of steam for speaking about ships and how they moved about the seas. But... I can't know any naval enthusiast, whether it be civilian or military, who doesn't like a good age of sail story. And for this episode, we are covering an era that we briefly covered way back at the beginning of the podcast. That is the age of sail. But it's very specific to the context of the American Revolution and the War of 1812 and the years in between. Though I have a story about the Barbary Wars that might be of interest, the age of sail, and especially its height in the latter 18th century, was truly a magnificent era for the navigation of the oceans. This is the era when you talk about people getting back to basics and just doing something by the sweat of your brow and the grit of determination. That is the era of sail. I mean, this is where... You really needed uh, a map, a compass, and a sextant. And as long as you had a good crew that knew what they were doing, you could pretty much go anywhere. And, of course, a knowledge of the winds. Because a sailing ship is kind of a slave to uh, to the winds. You're not going anywhere that the winds aren't going to take you. However, the American War for Independence essentially meant that we had a new country on the block that had no official army and, more importantly, no official navy. The United States had a long coastline from Maine to Georgia, which could not be easily defended. Ultimately, the French Navy, which had allied themselves with the fledgling United States, helped uh, help this nation to not be starved by a hostile blockade of that East Coast, which ironically would be a tactic later used by the Federal Navy, otherwise known as the North, during the Civil War to starve the Confederacy, a.k.a. the South, out. So this is an interesting story about the Revolutionary War at sea. That's something that people never really hear about. Um, You know, when we think of the Revolutionary War, we always... Think about the big land battles that occurred like Yorktown, Saratoga, Lexington, all of those famous things that we learn about in elementary school. And we can still go visit the battlefields today. But there were a number of actions that occurred on the water in the Revolutionary War. And we actually did have a somewhat substantial naval force for the early fledgling United States. This was not it was kind of it's considered the descendant 
I'm sorry, the ancestor of the modern U.S. Navy, but at the time it was called the Continental Navy, kind of like the Army was called the Continental Army. Um, the Navy traces itself back to the Continental Navy. So if you look at the Navy's patch, it says 1775 is the founding date, um, but that's actually the founding date for the Continental Navy. So we'll just run through a little bit of how this happened and, and how the Continental Navy did during the war. Obviously, as Wade mentioned, the participation of the French fleet ended up being essential to victory in the Revolutionary War, but we did some of the lifting ourselves. This all started out, interestingly, with individual colonies. So when the revolution first started to break out, individual colonies decided to create navies for themselves. And it wasn't until a little bit later that they actually created a unified U.S. naval force. And even after that happened, some of these individual colonies maintained their own naval forces. So we had the Massachusetts State's Navy. We had the Pennsylvania State Navy, the Virginia State Navy. Several of these individual groups continued to maintain their own warships throughout the revolution, and even in some cases a little bit after. The very first inkling of what became the U.S. Navy was on June 12, 1775, when the Rhode Island General Assembly passed a resolution creating a navy of the colony of Rhode Island. The flagship of this force was a sloop called the Katy, K-A-T-Y. Um, Later on, that ship would get renamed, and we'll talk about that later, but the Katy was the first vessel of the Rhode Island State Navy, and so could be considered the first vessel of what would become the U.S. Navy. A little bit later, so a few months later, August 26, 1775, once again, Rhode Island takes the lead and passes a resolution that there would be a single Continental Navy funded by the Continental Congress. This same resolution was then brought into Continental Congress in October of 1775, but they actually didn't pass it. They tabled the bill. In the meantime, though, everybody's favorite early American hero, George Washington, recognized the need to start to put together a fleet. And so his first ship that he purchased was a schooner called the Hannah. So it could be said that the Hannah was the first ship of the unified U.S. Navy. And, you know, it's funny. It's not the kind of name that you would expect for, you know, the, the first ship in the U.S. fleet, but it was the Hannah. Um, and then shortly after that, finally, in October 13th, 1775, so basically 10 days later, the Continental Congress finally passes a resolution creating the Continental Navy. This is what it said. It said, resolved that a swift sailing vessel to carry 10 carriage guns and a proportionate number of swivels with 80 men be fitted with all possible dispatch for a cruise of three months and that the commander be instructed to cruise eastward for intercepting such transports as may be laden with warlike stores and other supplies for our enemies and for such other purposes as the Congress shall direct. So there we go. There's the U.S. Navy officially founded. And as you can tell from that announcement, the purpose was to try to stop supplies from reaching the British um, Army forces that were on the continent. So immediately, uh, Congress begins to purchase additional ships. So the first two ships that are purchased are the Andrew Doria and the Cabot. Those are smaller ships, those are brigs. And then the first big ship that they put into commission was a frigate, the USS Alfred, which was purchased on November 4th and commissioned December 3rd, 1775. So that's the first officially commissioned ship of the Continental Navy. And that was a 24-gun converted merchant ship. Oddly enough, named after King Alfred of England. And what people forget is that early on in the Revolutionary War, people still weren't 100% sure how they felt about being totally independent from England. And so that's a good example of that. So then what happens is December 13th, 1775, 
Congress decides to get really serious about building an actual fleet for the United States. And so they authorized the construction of 13 frigates, five ships with 32 guns, five with 28 guns, and three with 24 guns. And uh, this was a major undertaking for the colonies at the time, because these are this is basically asking the colonies to build a squadron of fairly large, high-quality warships up to European standards, and that ended up being a challenge. Right around the same time, they had to pick their officers. So the early officers that were selected were Essex Hopkins, Dudley Saltonstall, John Burroughs Hopkins, which was Essex Hopkins' son. Those guys were kind of politically appointed, but they didn't have as much experience. But uh, Abraham Whipple, Nicholas Biddle, and John Paul Jones were also appointed as commanders, and these guys knew what they were doing. Yep. So we've all heard of John Paul Jones. We'll get to him um, later. So finally, um, in March 1776, the first major naval action of the United States Navy, or in this case, the Continental Navy, occurs. And um, we have three ships in this battle, and two of these names would go on to become very important and famous names in U.S. Navy history. So our three ships were the flagship, the Providence, which was the former Katy, the flagship of the Rhode Island Navy. The other two were the Wasp and the Hornet. Isn't that interesting? So the Wasp had eight guns and the Hornet had 10 guns. And we were actually kind of gutsy. This squadron of three ships attacked Nassau, Bahamas. So that's what we did. We seized a bunch of gunpowder for the use of the Continental Army. Um, and then we added a, a fourth ship to the fleet, the fearsomely named USS Fly, F-L-Y, armed with eight guns. They then fought a battle with a British ship called the Glasgow with 20 guns, and that was the first major sea battle of the Continental Navy. Meanwhile, on Lake Champlain, we build a fleet of 12 ships to try to stop the British fleet from invading New York from Canada. And this is a kind of a prefigurement of another battle we're going to cover later in this episode. Um, the fleet was destroyed at what was called the Battle of Valcor Island, but it was kind of a tactical or, or strategic victory for the U.S. because it did manage to slow the British Army down. Interestingly enough, the commander of the U.S. fleet at the Battle of Valcor Island was Benedict Arnold. So, you know, there you go. Um, so meanwhile, I mentioned that these 13 frigates were under construction. So of these 13 ships, only eight of them actually made it out to sea. So five of them never actually managed to get out <laughs> past the British blockade for whatever reason. And unfortunately, all of them, all 13, were either sunk or captured by the British. So uh, we uh, didn't do so well with our early Navy. But some of these ships had some interesting stories. And you'll, again, I'll, I'll give you their names. And you'll notice that some of these names end up showing up again later in the US Navy. So the big ships, the 32 gunners, were the Hancock, the Raleigh, the Randolph, the Warren, and the Washington. Of those, two of those names, the Hancock and the Randolph, those were the namesakes for two of the Essex class carriers in World War II. And then there were five 28 um, gun ships the Effingham, Montgomery, Providence, Trumbull, and Virginia. And then the small ones, the 24 gun ships, were the Boston, the Congress, and the Delaware. So, unfortunately, the Washington, Effingham, Congress, and Monterey were all scuttled or burned before going to sea to keep from being captured. Um, and then the Virginia never managed to get out um, through the blockade. She ended up running aground um, and got captured. So that didn't do so well. But 
uh, interestingly enough, we did have great success with privateers. And we've mentioned privateers before. Privateers are essentially uh, licensed pirates who are given permission by a government to attack ships of another country specifically. And they're given what's called letters of mark. And so each privateer receives a letter of mark. We issued 1,697 letters of mark. So we had quite a few wow. privateers going. <laughs> Um, and during the Revolutionary War, these privateers captured 2,208 British ships, quite a few. Um, so they did pretty well. Yeah. Um, but the frigates that went to sea um, had some kind of mixed, uh, mixed success. The, um, some, uh, some of them had some sort of successful cruises before they got captured. Um, an example uh, being the Hancock, um, which was considered the best of the frigates that we built. She was kind of the fastest and best built. The Hancock, which was named after John Hancock, captured a British Navy vessel called the HMS Fox, but she was then captured by a British warship called the HMS Rainbow and renamed the HMS Iris. Um, my favorite of these 13 frigates of the Continental Navy is the USS Randolph. And the reason for this is because she was escorting a convoy when she was attacked in 1778 by a British 64-gun ship of the line, the HMS Yarmouth, which was a far superior ship on paper. The Randolph almost managed to beat the Yarmouth. In fact, the Randolph was winning when the Yarmouth hit the Randolph in her power magazine, and then the entire frigate, the Randolph, blew up and only four of her crew survived which was pretty, pretty rough, but I'm proud of the Randolph for almost winning. That's, that's pretty impressive. And actually, ironically enough, all of the debris from the explosion of the Randolph caused enough damage to the British battleship, the Yarmouth, that, that she then could not chase the rest of the American ships. So those are just sort of examples of what happened to these 13 frigates. Um, kind of all of them were, were failures, but then, a couple of interesting things started to happen. We had another officer who I mentioned earlier named John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones is considered the first ma major hero of the U.S. Navy. And his ship, he had several commands, but one of his important ones was a sloop called the USS Ranger, another name that shows up later on in U.S. Navy history. Uh, and the Ranger was, I believe, an 18-gun sloop of war, and she was the first U.S. ship to be formally recognized with a gun salute by another country because the French fleet gave her a salute. And so that was the first time that that sort of diplomatic recognition. I, I actually have a book about that. It's called The First Salute. Well, there you go. Yeah, so that was the first time that that sort of diplomatic recognition had been extended to, um, to John Paul Jones. So meanwhile, so he's in France at this point and the French decide to loan him a East Indiaman, and an East Indiaman is a term for a armed merchant ship, which predicted, as you can maybe be able to tell from the name, would be used for trade with India. This old, this at this point was a rather old and decrepit East Indiaman. It was named the Duke de Duras. He refitted it and renamed it the Bonham Richard, one of the most famous names in U.S. Navy history. So this is in 1779. And um, he ends up heading up a squadron of ships that are composed of U.S. flagged and French flagged ships. One of his other ships in the squadron is my ship of the week. And that is 
the 14th frigate built by the U.S. fleet, the USS Alliance, which is one of my favorite ships. So I mentioned we had these 13 earlier frigates and all of them, you know, basically failed. The 14th one that we built was the USS Alliance, laid down in 1777 in Massachusetts, and she was originally supposed to be named Hancock, but they ended up renaming her Alliance in honor of the alliance with the French. When she was completed in 1779, she or 1778, excuse me, she was believed to be the finest ship ever constructed in the Americas. So um, she was a 36-gun frigate armed with 28 18-pounder guns and 12 9-pounder guns. And so this made her by far the most powerful ship in the Continental Fleet. Now, there's kind of an interesting story of her command, and this is where it gets kind of crazy. So her commander um, was this gentleman named Landay. And Landay was under the impression that he was going to be the naval version of Marquis de Lafayette. He was a former French officer who came to the U.S. and was hoping to become, you know, a national hero, essentially. But he was kind of crazy. And so we're going to hear a little bit about some of the, the nutty stuff that he did. But anyway, um, his first mission was to carry Lafayette, his, you know, inspiration back to France to ask for additional help. So he went over to France now, what ends up happening when he gets to France is Benjamin Franklin, another important name, orders the USS Alliance to stay in France and join the squadron that I mentioned that John Paul Jones had put together. So the Alliance joins the squadron. But the problem is that Landay decides that he doesn't really have to listen to John Paul Jones, and he can just do basically whatever he wants. And so he doesn't sail with the squadron. He goes basically wherever he feels is right. And he just basically does whatever he wants and takes the ship all over the place. So basically, he refused to cooperate with John Paul Jones, which became very frustrating to him. Um, so several things happened. Um, there were a series of actions. And then finally, the squadron does manage to get all together. And they are in the process of attacking Scarborough in England when right around a place called Flamborough Head, they sight a convoy of 40 British merchant ships, and they are being escorted by two ships, the 44-gun frigate HMS Serapis and another ship called the Countess of Scarborough. This turns into what's called the Battle of Flamborough Head, which is the most famous battle of the Revolutionary War at sea. And this, you've probably heard of this, even if you don't think you have, because the Bonhomme Richard, John Paul Jones's flagship, and the Serapis ended up grappling each other and getting locked into this really vicious gun duel. And the, the poor old Bonham Richard was getting pounded to pieces by the Serapis. Um, and Captain Pearson of the Serapis essentially asked John Paul Jones if he was going to surrender. And John Paul Jones's famous response was, I have not yet begun to fight. Meaning, you know, you haven't seen anything yet, basically. Um, however, Landay in the USS Alliance wasn't helping the situation because this ship, the most powerful ship in the U.S. Navy, is just sitting there, not doing anything, because Landay doesn't want it to get damaged, okay? So he just kind of sits there, and John Paul Jones is like, what are you doing? Get over here and help. Well, finally, Landay decides to do this, but he's concerned that he doesn't want the Serapis' guns to be able to hit the Alliance, so he positions the Alliance in such a way that the Serapis can't hit it which is all well and good, but that means that he's basically put 
the Bonham Richard, the other American ship, between himself and the Serapis. So when the Alliance opens fire, she fires a broadside mm-hmm. into the Bonham Richard. <laughs> so this does not help anything. And this is becoming- the already, yeah. Yeah, the already bad relationship between uh, John Paul Jones and Landay just got, you know, infinitely worse. What ends up happening is finally, against all odds, the Bonham Richard manages to defeat the Serapis. The Serapis surrenders. The next day, the Bonham Richard is so heavily damaged that she sinks. And then John Paul Jones takes over the Serapis. Well, anyway, after all of this happens, um, Landay is in some trouble. And so um, these guys, you know, are not getting along. Um, and so <laughs> what ends up happening is they, they go back to um, the Netherlands. And so at this point, the British try to blockade them in the Netherlands, um, but they manage to get out. Um, and um, John Paul Jones takes over command of the Alliance. He relieves Landay of command, you know, I can't imagine why, um, and manages to escape the British. Um, and then after this, um, the Alliance, you know, the, now it's 1780, um, things get even crazier with Landay. So Landay arrives in France and he tries to essentially sue to get his command back. Um, and, um, and and basically he... he tried to work through the French authorities to get his, you know, his, his um, being in trouble overturned. So finally, John Paul Jones relents and gives him back command of the alliance. And a lot of people are wondering why he did this. And the, the modern consensus is he was basically just trying to do anything he could to get rid of Land A. And so he's like, fine, you can have the ship back. Just leave me alone, essentially. So now the Alliance is supposed to go back to America with Landay in command. And this gets, this is where he gets totally Captain Bly crazy. So he starts fighting with his officers. He starts abusing his men. Any, um, any seamen who had joined the, the crew after the Bonham Richard had sunk, he suspected to be secretly loyal to John Paul Jones. So he locked a bunch of them up in irons imprisoned them in the rat-infested hold of the ship. And then apparently uh, the guy who had actually helped him get command of the ship back, he almost carved with a, or stabbed with a carving knife for taking the first slice of roast pig at dinner. So at this point, this guy is just like around the bend and, you know, totally crazy. So finally, the crew gets together. They decide he's insane and they forcibly relieve him of command. um, And they finally arrive in Boston. The Navy by this point has heard about all of this and they're very upset about Landay's behavior. They appoint a new guy in charge, Captain John Barry, who's one of the other major early heroes of the Continental Navy. Um, and by this point, Barry shows up to take command of the frigate when it arrives back in Boston. But Landay is so determined to hold on to this ship that he locks himself in the captain's cabin and has to be dragged off the ship by the Marines. So Anyway, um, a lot of these sea captains were real characters in the Age of Sail. Um, you know, it was not as, as a, the same level of professionalism that we have now. And uh, you can kind of see that from this incident. So anyway, the, um, the Alliance had a much more successful career under Barry. 
the most famous action that she had under him was when she fought two British ships at once, two sloops of war, the Atalanta and the Trespassy. Um, and um, this, this occurred shortly after she'd been damaged in a storm. So it was difficult for the Alliance to maneuver during this battle. Um, but uh, the, the two sloops attacked and um, it was looking pretty bad for the Alliance for a while. Barry, the captain, was actually hit in the shoulder by grape shot, which is where, where you take, it's, it's a really nasty weapon, you essentially take a canister of musket balls and fire it out of a cannon. It was euphemistically called an anti-personnel weapon. That's basically what it was. So it's basically a actually, giant shotgun. Yeah, it's a giant shotgun. So Barry was wounded, but he actually continued to command the ship until he basically um, was about to pass out. So he then put uh, command of the ship under this guy, Lieutenant Hoisted Hacker, um, and um, Hacker did his best, but the Alliance was still not able to maneuver. And because of this, she was unable to bring her main cannon batteries to bear on these two British ships. So he actually went down to the, the hospital area to ask Captain Barry's permission to surrender to the British. Barry says, what? No way. So he then demanded that he be carried back on deck to resume command of the ship. Um, and... Uh, Suddenly, a wind show, you know, appears out of nowhere, restores the maneuverability of the Alliance. This enables her to bring her cannons back into action. She immediately takes out the trespassy, and then one broadside later, the Atlanta also surrenders. And so both of these ships are captured by the Alliance. Um, one of them ended up, at the Atlanta actually ended up getting recaptured, but... Um, this was a, a major victory for the Continental Navy because, you know, we hadn't been doing so well before. Eventually, she came back to Boston right around the same time um, while the ship was being repaired. The Battle of Yorktown occurs. Um, and so, you know, the major land campaigns are over by this point. But the war actually does continue. And there were several other things that happened. I won't go through the whole history of, of the Alliance. It's an interesting read if you ever have time. But the bottom line is that there was another one final major battle um, that the Alliance participated in. This was in 1783. She was asked to escort another U.S. warship, the USS Duke de Lausanne. We had interesting names at this point, um, which was carrying gold. And um, the Alliance was tasked with escorting her. She then encountered three British warships, the HMS Alarm, the HMS Sybil, and HMS Tobago, and I, I must apologize, the, the correct way to refer to British ships, you don't put a the in front, it's just HMS, because that's Her Majesty's ship. So she encountered HMS Alarm, HMS Sybil, and HMS Tobago. There were some chasing maneuvers. What ended up happening um, was uh, she successfully fought off these British ships and uh, allowed the Duc de Lausanne to escape to safety. The British uh, captain of the HMS Sybil said that he had never seen a ship so ably fought as the Alliance. Um, interestingly, this battle was fought just uh, very close to Cape Canaveral. And this was the last battle of the Revolutionary War. So the USS Alliance fired the last shot of the Revolutionary War. So uh, that's kind hmm. of interesting. So anyway, this was kind of the end of the military career of the Alliance. There were a total of 56 ships that served with the Continental Navy. Within um, really just a couple of years, uh, 1785, the USS Alliance was the last ship in commission in the Continental Navy because they'd either lost the rest of them in, in battle or had sold them all off. 
At this point, uh, Congress decides, you know what? We finished fighting the Revolutionary War. We're done. We don't need a Navy anymore. We don't want to keep paying for this. And so thus it was that in 1785, the USS Alliance was sold to a merchant who then converted the ship into an East Indiaman and um, used her for trading with East Asia. Interestingly, the ship actually lasted quite a long time. Um, we don't know exactly how her career ended, but we do know that the ship was actually abandoned eventually across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. And pieces of her hulk remained there until 1901. So, uh, yeah. Whoa. So, um, this ship had a very long life, which was pretty interesting. We actually have a painting of the Alliance in our house, which is kind of fun. Um, it's actually a painting of her in her later years when she was a merchant vessel. Um, but I've always been kind of fascinated with her because she was the best ship that we built during the Revolutionary War. She was the last ship of the Continental Navy. And aside, we did actually build one ship of the line during the Revolutionary War. She was called, predictably, the USS America. She was a 74-gun battleship, by far the biggest ship that we built during the Revolutionary War. Her, her construction was supervised by none other than John Paul Jones. And he was all excited because he was about to take command of the ship. And then as soon as she was finished, we gave her to France as a thank you present. And so she never served under the U.S. flag. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of the story of the Continental Navy. Um, as I said, you know, as soon as the revolution was over, pretty much Congress decided that we didn't need a Navy. But as we're about to find out, that was not true. Yes. However, even after independence, the Royal Navy or the British Navy was still the power to deal with in the Atlantic. Just because you know, we had won with the assistance of the French didn't mean that they just disappeared. That's not how this works. This meant the new United States Navy had to develop tactics on taking the fight to the British in later conflicts. This is highlighted by one of Will's old ships of the week, the USS Constitution, which became so aggressive that, Royal Navy, that the Royal Navy ended up having standing orders not to engage her or her sisters, mm -hmm. as I recall. A key point about the age of sail for the United States. The United States Marine Corps was developed alongside the Navy and became known as the premier shipboard fighters. To an effect, this is still true to this day. However, the Barbary states would help form that crucible. Now, the Barbary states were a group of Islamic countries centered around Tripoli in northern Africa. And for those of you that don't know, this is still a very large Islamic area, northern Africa. So um, this is not out of the realm of possibility. And this is still in the days of the Ottoman Empire. So it's my guess is that the... Uh, Barbary states were offshoots My of the understanding empire. They were vassal and, states of the Ottomans. Yeah, they were like technically controlled by the Ottomans, but kind of self-governing. Yeah. So in any case, they would send out ships to take foreign merchant ships hostage. Now, this would be very, very different from what the British would do later before the War of 1812, where they would impress sailors into their into their merchant fleet or into their navy 
And this was one of the things that really kicked off the War of 1812 between the British and the United States, because basically we got so peeved at them that we couldn't have this anymore. So that's not how the Barbary states worked. They operated under a very simple system. Convert to Islam or die by beheading. So, yeah, not a lot of, not a lot of choice there. U.S. merchant ships and naval vessels became, began carrying Marines on board to help counteract this. But inevit inevitably, it didn't always end well for, America, for the Americans. This part of the story is special to me. U.S. Marines began wearing really, really, and I mean really thick collars of leather around their necks as part of their combat uniform. The idea was that it would either catch or deflect the sword swinging down and allow the sailor the chance to fight back. This gave the term to the, to the Marines leatherneck, which survives to this huh. day. My undergrad university, Western Illinois University, is also known as the Leathernecks. Our first athletic director, Rick Hansen was his name, was a Marine and asked permission from Congress to use the trademark as our name for our sports program. Since then, it has been our team name. That's my personal connection to this era of... I am proud to call myself a leatherneck, at least by distant... So, uh, that, was the, uh, that was the what would be called the Barbary Wars, but it was not so much, you could say, a nationalistic conflict as opposed to what the War of 1812 would uh, would come to be. Now, of course, with the War of 1812, we've all heard about, you know, the invasion of Washington, D.C. The British got chased out basically by a tornado. I don't know if you've ever heard that part of the story. No, I Will. didn't know that part. That's interesting. One uh, quick aside that, you know, just Wade mentioned the Barbary Wars. The, the Barbary Wars were the catalyst for founding what's now referred to as the modern U.S. Navy. And that was a few years after the Continental Navy. So that was kind of the, the wrap, the coming around back to needing that naval force after selling the alliance. Right. So, of course, uh, like I said, with the... Uh, with the invasion of Washington, D.C., we usually hear that part of the story. But there are a lot of elements of the War of 1812 that are not really talked about. And primarily, this has to do with what is called the, uh, the Battle for the Old Northwest. Now, the Old Northwest refers to the region that I am actually from. It is the upper Midwest. And of the United States. Now, this region was originally supposed to be sort of sort of part of the United States. It was supposed to be kind of British. No one really knew what this territory was supposed to be. Both countries though claimed territory of this uh, of this land. And of course, when land is involved, it's eventually going to become a territorial conflict. And then also we have a third party in this conflict. And of course, this third party almost always on North America are Native Americans. Now, in this case, it is led by a man known as Tecumseh. Mm -hmm. And 
He was a Native American leader. He wasn't exactly a chief. In fact, I've mostly heard him described as more like a spiritual leader, more than, say, a, uh, a military, military leader. But he was very charismatic, from what I understand, and uh, ended up rallying a bunch of the Native American tribes in the area, particularly in Michigan and also what would become Ohio and basically this area that kind of surrounds the eastern part of the Great Lakes. Now, he allied himself with the British, and this was a fairly common thing. The Native Americans, well, rightly so, didn't really trust the United States from the get-go and often thought of the, uh, the British as the lesser of the two evils in this regard. And... You know, given our later history, especially with Andrew Jackson just late, less than a decade away, uh, yeah, right. they're yeah. not wrong. <laughs> yeah, sorry guys, really, really sorry. But in any case, uh, Tecumseh uh, starts stirring things up, uh, much to the much to the delight of the British, and then, of course, like I mentioned, the uh, American merchant vessels primarily start getting boarded by British uh, by British ships and impressing them into their service. And this is a highly illegal act. And of course, when it gets back to Congress and the uh, and I believe President Madison at this point, yes, President yep. Madison, of course, they're infuriated and. Uh, as this keeps building and building and building. And the main reason that the British were doing this was because of the Napoleonic Wars that are happening on the other side of the Atlantic. And they ultimately see this as we need more bodies. We don't really care where they come from. And also we need to assert our authority over our former colony. So maybe we can get them back. Ultimately the war of 1812 is Britain's last, I would call, real chance of taking uh, their old 13, uh, 13 colonies. Yeah. And I say that even with my knowledge of their interference in the Civil War. But really, this is their last chance. But primarily, what I'm going to be talking about is what becomes known as the Battle of Lake Erie. And this is just an amazing battle. And I still have no idea how this actually turned right for the for the Americans in this point, but the main players in, in this battle had been building for quite some time, but to sum it up in a somewhat brief, uh, brief way, the, the great lakes of course were somewhat of a, I guess you could say a physical boundary between uh, the British territory in the, uh, in Canada, or what we would become known as Canada, and the disputed territories of the uh, of the old Northwest, and it was really seen as strategic. Whoever controls the Great Lakes ultimately controls uh, controls the old Northwest, and the British and the Americans both realized this, and. Unfortunately, there were a lot of bad situations that, that happened in between there and then. Unfortunately, I don't have a ton of time to go through those. But the key players in this, in this battle were 
of course, the American commander for this was Master Commandant, and I love that term, Master Commandant, Oliver Hazard Perry. And Oliver Hazard Perry is a name that we should recognize. He, uh, as well, he is another one of the United States' very early uh, naval heroes. And also he is part of what was called, what would become known as the Perry Dynasty. There were a, apparently, uh, well, he was the son of a United States Navy captain. And then he, uh, a, a number of his descendants would also become uh, quite well-known officers in the U.S. Navy. So this guy is kind of seen as both a rock star and somewhat the um, the spoiled military brat, <laughs> but he did know his stuff. I will give him that. So I can't I can't really use spoiled very much. And then on the other side, commanding the HMS Detroit was Commander Robert Harriet Barkley and. Ultimately, Barkley opens fire first. In the, uh, in the lead up to the battle, I will say there weren't ideal conditions for the Americans going into this battle. They, uh, Perry actually musters his ships at 7 a.m. in what's called Putin Bay, and he weighs anchor, and he has to zigzag back and forth, like I said, with ships, uh, with sailing ships, they are slaves to the wind. And if you don't set yourself up right, you're going to have to end up zigzagging to just get any distance. And as he goes around this peninsula that kind of protects Putin Bay, he sees Barclay's formation of six ships. And at this point, he, uh, Barclay has, uh, has Perry and his officers outgunned. And honestly... Uh, Perry also, again, because of wind situation, he can't get a good shot on them. So it's almost seen as a miracle when the wind changes again and Perry is able to finally close with the enemy and attack. And this was the, this was the turning point of the battle. Now, it didn't go perfectly. Uh, Perry had hoped two of his largest ships, which were both brigs, Lawrence and Niagara, could get into carronade, uh, uh, carronade range, which were kind of smaller but more high impact guns. Uh, so, unfortunately, he couldn't uh, he couldn't do that. But uh, so, if I remember correctly, yes, the um, ultimately Perry uh, Perry gets his ship shot out from under him, uh, the the Lawrence and he ends up taking what's called his personal pennant down from the ship. And this personal pennant had his personal motto on it, which is called don't give up the ship. And this, uh, this motto uh, that was on his banner becomes the motto of the U S Navy because of what happens at this action. And he sails, uh, he rows over to the Niagara with the rest of the Lawrence's crew and from then on, they really start kicking butt. Uh, they end up get, getting the two largest ships of the British formation tangled into each other. And from that point, they are able to circle around and basically pound these ships into, uh, into hulks. And by the end of the battle, Perry has pretty much trounced uh, the, uh, the 
uh, the British formation. He has done it with less guns, less tonnage, and honestly, inferior ships. And this was the reason that Perry became a rock star in his own right when he becomes, uh, when he comes back to Putin Bay. And ultimately, there were a few. Uh, there were a few hiccups. President Madison wasn't a huge fan of what uh, of what he did because uh, he already had enough what he called naval hotheads on his hands. Um, <laughs> Just as a point aside with the naval hotheads, Stephen Decatur, our mo- one of our most um, promising early sea captains, died in a pistol duel. So that tells you something. Yeah, I mean, you did say that uh, that naval captains on both sides were quite a colorful bunch. Yeah. And Perry was no exception. So I think it I think it was was more just a trait of the uh, of the uh, of the age of sail. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, to be uh, to be on the same ship with a, a whole group of people, possibly for weeks and months at a time, you probably had to be a certain type of person in order to handle that. Yeah. And one other, one other so, quick aside too. So the don't give the up the ship motto actually came from a, another battle that had occurred very shortly before the Battle of Lake Erie. And that was the duel between USS Chesapeake and HMS Shannon um, when we lost one of our frigates, the USS Chesapeake. The last words of, of the Chesapeake's captain, James Lawrence, were don't give up the ship. And so even though we lost that battle, don't give up the ship became a rallying cry for the U.S. Navy during the War of 1812. And so Perry kind of made it his own personal motto. I, I don't know, but it would make sense if his ship, the USS Lawrence, was named after Captain Lawrence, who said, don't give up the ship. I'm thinking that's where that all came from. It could very well be. And also, Theodore Roosevelt, our later president, actually weighed in on this battle I'm not surprised. He considered himself somewhat of a military expert. He described um, he described uh, part of the reason that this uh, that this battle was won by the Americans was that the Americans simply put more effort into the ships that they built. You mentioned earlier, Will, that these were well made ships. the uh, The Americans didn't skimp details when they uh, when they did build their their naval vessels no and so, I think we need to give some credit to um adam and noah brown which were the two brothers that built the lawrence and the niagara they built them very quickly basically in the middle of nowhere and they built them well enough that not only did they win the battle but the niagara is still around and um can be visited today she's a working museum ship she is in sailing condition um there's some debate over how much of it is a replica versus how much of it is original because um, it's been rebuilt several times. But it, it, I consider it to be the same USS Niagara still around. Pretty cool. Well, the USS Constitution, you could say the same. She's about 15% original right now. Yeah, in terms of original timber. Yeah. Yeah. But just to, just to point this out, uh, the Oliver Hazard Perry name lived on later with the Oliver Hazard Perry uh, class of destroyers, which I understand were quite a well-loved uh, class of destroyers. And uh, in the U.S. Navy, they kind of filled that time with an enemy to fight, from what I understand. Uh, but yeah. they were 
but they were well. Yeah, they were there. I think they're actually frigates. Um, and we also sold a bunch of them to other countries as es uh, exports. So we, there were a ton of those ships. And also you mentioned that he had descendants, his, I think son, maybe Matthew Perry was the one who opened Japan to foreign trade. Um, that was his grandson. I'm sorry? That was his grandson. Grandson. Okay, that would make a little bit more sense. Yeah, okay, so be yeah, a descendant. So it was an accomplished family. Yeah, they were um, Oliver Hazard Perry, John Paul Jones, and so many others. These were, this is the reason that the United States has a very, very, very proud tradition to this day. Do not mess with someone who is in the U.S. Navy. They, no. uh, they have a very proud tradition, basically. Absolutely. So I can, this has been really, really fun. And to be honest, it's fun to take things back a little bit. And unfortunately, Dry Dock, we are out of time for today. Well, I think this has been well, uh, well-deserved aside from our usual era. Absolutely. And I think it'd be fun for us to continue to visit the age of sail every so often because there's just so many colorful stories. I still want to do a episode on pirates. Yeah, we'll certainly have to touch on that. And I think we could do a whole episode about the Barbary conflicts because those were really interesting. Yeah, that's my, my story about Leathernecks is just one aside. Yeah, it's really just there's, the iceberg. Uh, there's so much more to tell. And everyone, I just want to thank you for your patience and thank you for listening. And again, if you have questions, comments, critiques, or just want to uh, just want to submit a question, you can reach us at uh, in the dry dock podcast, all lowercase letters at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you if you if you choose to. And well, I think we could say fair winds and following, following seas. seas. Thanks, guys.